Bible or some device, smartphone, that you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you haven't been with us very often, we, we work our way through books of Scripture, just kind of chapter by chapter, um, over you know weeks or months, however long is necessary. We are moving pretty rapidly through 1 Timothy. We'll actually finish it this month um, before moving into a new longer book for the fall. So we'll be in 1 Timothy 4. As you're turning, um, just a brief little bit of recap. Um, Timothy is a, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul um, towards the very end of his ministry and life, uh, most likely in the mid-60s. Um, to Timothy, who was kind of a protege, a younger man. It was not his son, but they had a father-son relationship in the ministry. And Timothy is currently in the city of Ephesus. Paul is writing um, from Macedonia, wishing to be back in Ephesus ministering. And so he's written this letter to Timothy that is both a private letter written to an individual, but it's also a public letter in that there's some direction for the larger congregation and body. And so Timothy gets some personal details. The church is also getting to kind of look over his shoulder as he reads this, and so it's for them as well. And primarily the issue that that Paul is wanting Timothy to deal with are false teachers, that false teachers have arisen, that they're looking to, to counteract that because ultimately the role of the church, as we saw last week, is to be like the buttress of truth, the pillar of truth in a community. And as the household of God is organized appropriately and properly, then mission can go forth. And, and the reason that we care about mission going forth is because Jesus is worthy of worship. And so a church that is in constant turmoil, a church that is inwardly focused or infighting, mission gets pushed to the side, and it means we're not making much of Jesus and others aren't coming to know him. And so he's looking to set up the church in Ephesus to be healthy, to be orderly, so that mission can go forth, so that Jesus receives the glory and the honor that he richly deserves. And one of the specific things that Timothy's going to have to deal with is, is false teachers. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe." Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So if you remember last week at the end of chapter 3, Paul ends this chapter with a brief hymn that kind of quickly lays out the gospel, right? It's the very last verse. He says, He was manifested in the flesh. Jesus, we see the incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He is proclaimed among the nations. He is believed on in the world, and He is taken up in glory. And so it just kind of lays out the incarnation all the way back to the church um, going in the second coming being with God forever. And it just, in, in six lines, in six phrases, lays out the gospel. And it was a hymn that would have been familiar. And so what he's doing is he's connecting in chapter 4. He's saying, these false teachers who have emerged, these things that I've just asked you to affirm, they're not affirming them. And so he's going to dig into this a little bit, but he's saying this hallmark, this benchmark of who we are as those who trust and follow and treasure Jesus, these men are rejecting it. And so what he's going to do here in chapter 4 is he's going to compare and contrast false teachers with healthy teachers and give the body some practical things to do um, in in learning how to recognize um, and learning how to to follow and to not be sucked in to teaching. And so in our first three verses, we just, again, are reminded of false teachers. So he says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Paul just kind of gets after it in a hurry. And he, and he has strong words here. In Mark 13, Jesus told his followers that there would be a day coming He says this in in verse 20 um, through 23 of Mark 13. Excuse me, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, this is Jesus speaking, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise. They will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. So Jesus has told his followers, look, there will be those who will come who are going to attempt to lead the faithful astray. And they're going to be able to teach and they're going to be able to do things that might tempt you away. In Acts 20, when Paul is addressing the elders at Ephesus, right, the the church that we're dealing with here, he tells them that from within your body, there are going to come wolves looking to devour. From within the body. And so what has happened now is is Timothy is receiving this letter, is what Paul has promised would happen has happened. That there have been those who have arisen, there have been those from within who are looking to lead the church astray, to confuse it, to take them off of mission, which is ultimately then off of worship of Jesus. If we remember, Satan is not just a tempter of sin, but he's a deceiver, Right, Revelation 12, 9 tells us that he is, right, the deceiver of the whole world. That he is the father of lies, John 8, 44. Right, like that he is, he's looking to tempt, but he's also looking simply to deceive. 
And so if we know that we have an enemy, what Jesus was warning us, right, and what Paul is now doing with with Timothy is saying, look, church, so this is for us. There are going to be those who are going to walk with you for a while. They're going to walk away. They're going to be those who are going to speak and teach on these foundational truths, and you're going to think that they're like you, that they're with you, that they're for you, and eventually they're not going to persevere, and they're going to walk away. And he says, I don't want you to be shocked by it. You're going to be saddened by it. You're going to be taken aback by it. He says, but I want you to be able to respond well and accordingly and appropriately. I told you that this was going to happen. And so we have to learn how to recognize them and how to deal with these situations. And so when he says in the, in the later days, in the last days that some will depart, the last days is, is a catch-all phrase that doesn't mean in the very last moments of history. What it is, is it's, it's referring to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That as soon as Jesus came, the cross and the resurrection occurred, we are now in and have been in the last days, the latter days since. And all of these days are the last days until Jesus returns for us. The latter days simply meaning that salvation has occurred, that, that we understand where salvation lies and where it is found, and we are currently now in an already but not yet situation where salvation is here and we know it and we can look back at the cross with hope and with joy, with peace. We can find that in Christ and yet we live in a place where there is still an enemy who is prowling on this earth looking to, to devour, to deceive, to tempt, to distract from Jesus. And so when he comes, right, the final victory will happen and there will be a day where all tears will be wiped away, right, where all bodies will be made whole and perfect again and we will reside with Jesus in eternity forever, right? But in the meantime, we know that hope that we have, but we live in a world that is still being attacked by the evil one. And so he says, look, you're going to have struggle and you're going to have issues because of this. I want you to recognize it and be able to respond well. And so he continues, these men, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. This word insincerity is also the word here for hypocrite. So what he's saying is, look, they are, they're putting themselves out as teachers of the gospel. And he's like, whether they're doing it intentionally or whether they have been themselves deceived and assumed that they're doing things correctly, they're putting themselves out as teachers of the truth of the gospel, and yet they are actually doing something very different, and they are leading people astray. They are teaching a false gospel pointing to a false God. And he says they've been seared, that their minds, their hearts, their consciences have been seared. And the idea here is not branded like that they're marked by the devil, that that's how you see it, but that they no longer are hearing and listening to the Spirit. You think about it in a bit of a comical way with, with children, right? And so if you grew up in a home with a parent who was a yeller, or if you tend to, to have the propensity to yell, right? Kids can, man, they can become seared to yelling, right? That as you, as you raise your voice, as you're getting on to them, as you're trying to get their attention, it's like they're literally deaf to that, right? Now you're like, I'm like, your eyes are bulging out of your head, you know, the veins popping out, you're screaming, and they're just like doing their thing. 
And you're like, how? Right? And it's because they've just gotten so accustomed to it that they've literally shut it off. They're seared to it. And, and you have to get their attention another way. Right? Because they, they just have ignored it for so long. And what's happened with these false teachers is that the Spirit was ministering, moving, convicting, and they kept saying no. And they kept rejecting it. And they kept walking away from it until eventually they didn't feel, they didn't sense, they didn't hear the promptings of the Spirit any longer. That they have been seared, cauterized, numb to these things. That they are deaf and ignorant. So he says they have been seared off. They are liars. They are deceived. And he says this also, that they are receiving messages. That they have been guided by the demonic. And again, this doesn't mean that they even know that they have, but that they have been deceived by the father of lies, looking to lead people away from knowing and trusting the one true God of seeing him rightly. Now listen, this may seem surprising to you, because often when we think about the devil doing something, we assume it's like flashy, and it's, it's, it's outwardly opposed to God, or it's, it's really wrapped up in um, excess sexual sin, violence, money, power, and these things that are clearly opposed and rebellious to God. And he does. He does call people into that. He does lead people astray to to outwardly, flippantly oppose God as a rebel. But he's crafty, and he's the deceiver, and so it means he also leads people into religious activity that misses God completely. And so what's happening here is they're, they're focusing on minutia and on these other aspects of God that are leading them to be so focused on that they're missing who God is completely. And no one would look at them and say, yeah, your, your religion is of the devil because they're, they're acting okay. And they're not doing these flamboyant, rebellious things. They're not living in excess. But in both of them, here's what the devil is doing that's the same. He's saying, God's not good. In one, he's saying, you need to seek pleasure. You need to seek these things because God is withholding pleasure from you. And so the sin is, God's not good. He's holding things that are good back from me, and I've got to circumvent God to get them. And the other, he's saying, what God has created and given us isn't good. That we need to restrain ourselves from this. And so he gives some examples of what they're saying. In verse 3, these false teachers currently are forbidding marriage, and they're requiring abstinence from food. And so he's saying, if you remember, as we walked through 1 Corinthians last year, that there was this idea in Corinth that to be super spiritual was to begin to live like you didn't need much anymore. You, you were putting your body, um, you, you were like monkish, right? And so you were leaving marriage relationships, and you were avoiding sex, and you were living this really lean life. And he's saying what you're doing is you're saying the things that God has, has given us, what He has created us and given us these gifts, that they're not good. And so if they're not good, you're saying God's not good. And yet they're claiming super spirituality. That they're living in a way that would not honor the giver of the gift because they're saying we reject your gifts and we need to do something different to be spiritual. So what he does is he immediately goes to Scripture. Look at verses 4 and 5. He gives them something to do practically, a, a way to test what a teacher is teaching with Scripture. And so he goes, For everything... 
created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God. And so what he's doing is he's taking us back to creation. He's saying, look, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them access to food and told them to eat and to enjoy. And then he, put, he gave the first bride to the first husband. He gave marriage. He's not opposed to marriage. He's not opposed to sexual activity, but he's given it a proper place for it to happen. And so what he's saying is, you are saying that these things that are gifts from God don't honor God, and so you're trying to, as, to show spirituality by withholding them from your life. Listen, pleasures will not satisfy you ultimately. But pleasures point us to the fact that there's a giver of pleasure. Right? So my, one, of, one of my favorite times of the year is coming, the fall. Right? And, and I love those crisp days, right, where it's not hot and it's not cold, but it's just there's a little bit of coolness in the air, right? And, and, and the activities that come with the fall, the weather, the color, the I, I love that time of year. And it does something for my soul. Like my soul soars, and, and I'm not a creator of poetry, but if I was, that's the time of year I would create it, right? Because there's just something that stirs in me that I love it. And for some of you, that's, that's, that's other things, or it's other places, or it's the mountains, or it's the... Right? That there are things that in you that just soar and go, this is a good thing. Some of you are, are foodies in a way that like blow the rest of us away, and you, you can take these great tastes and flavors of, of food or wine or whatever it is, and you just know there's a God, and He is good. Right? And, and not in a flippant way, but in a holy way that it just stirs something in you. And what these pleasures do, what these senses do, is if they, if they end on themselves, then they ultimately will not satisfy then you can't spend enough time in the mountains to satisfy yourself. You can't spend enough time at the beach. You can't have enough autumn days. You can't drink enough wine. You cannot eat enough food. You cannot have enough sex. You cannot do these things that will ultimately satisfy you. But what they do is they point to there's one who is the giver of good gifts and of pleasure. And if we begin to look at him as the one who satisfies and we receive his gifts with gratitude, what he's saying is you can eat as worship right? And you can enjoy creation as worship. And so what Paul is telling them is, look, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so I can eat a meal, and I can consume it, and I can see that that was it. Or I can bring it in and say, God has given us flavor, and God has given us provision, and God has given us creativity, and God has given us satisfaction, and He is the giver of it. And I'm grateful to be a recipient of it. And I can spend time in the mountains and see these things and enjoy cooler weather and say, but it's ultimately from God, who is a giver of even better gifts in Christ, and who ultimately is calling us to Himself to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. And so Paul is saying, let's not forbid these things. Let's enjoy them in their proper understanding of the giver of them. And let us see it as, as worship. 
But because of the effects of the fall, because of rebellion, things get twisted. And so we look at relationships as the end-all, be-all. We look at pleasure as the end-all, be-all. We look at nature as the end-all, be-all. And we, we cut God out of it completely. And what we find is we pursue those to their end, and they do not satisfy. So Paul is saying we have to understand them in their proper context, their proper, their proper understanding that he is the giver of good gifts and he is anything but stingy and he is doing anything but withholding. In fact, he is calling us to enjoy more and to have more and to know more in him for all of eternity. So the false teachers, he says, one of the ways that we can test what false teachers are doing is are they making us treasure and trust and enjoy God more? Or are they leading us into this lack of? He then contrasts the false teachers with healthy teachers, with with faithful teachers. So he says, and he continues with Scripture. Look at verse 6. So if you put these things, Timothy, before the brothers, and what he means is verses 4 and 5, the truth of Scripture. So if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So have nothing to do with these irreverent and silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. In verse 6, He says, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant there is the word for deacon. Um, It's the word ultimately for waiter. He's saying, Timothy, lay out the spread. Show it to people. Show what the Lord has done and given and created. And then you get out of the way and say, it's not me, it's him. Look at what he's given us. Look what he's exposed us to. Look at what he's calling us to. The church, the, the job of, of anyone who stands up here and preaches, the job of the band as they lead us into worship, the job of those who facilitate discussion at gospel community, the, our job as we interact with neighbors and coworkers and family members who don't yet know Jesus or who, who do and are beginning to know Him more, is that we would be the waiters saying, look at what the chef has created. Not, not look how clever I am. Not look how good I am. Not look at me. The, the waiter's job is to deliver what the, the chef has done and to ask people to enjoy it, to point to the creator of those things. And so what he is saying is he's like, look, a faithful teacher, not a false teacher, a faithful teacher is going to point you to Jesus in everything that they do. And then they're going to get out of the way. They're not looking for, for power or for pride, or for prestige, or for influence, or for money. They're saying, we want you to know the giver of all good gifts, and it's Jesus. That He is faithful, and He is good, and He is worthy. He says, look, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Right? There's humility in that, that you're not um, on top of things. You are a servant. You belong to someone. You belong to Him. And so your job is simply to point them back to Him. He continues, Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. This idea of training yourself is is a really key component for the church today. Because if we're not careful, here's what we do. We say, what does this passage mean to you? How does this passage make you feel? What are your thoughts on this? And what we're saying is, whatever you say is good. And that's not true. Right? That Scripture has meaning. And it means what it means. 
and that we have, to un- we have to work to mine the riches of it, to understand it, to gain the significance of what Scripture is teaching us. And that there, it means there are right answers and that there are wrong answers, and there are right emotions and there are wrong emotions, and there are right responses and wrong responses to Scripture. And we're going to occasionally mess those things up, like that we have to train ourselves of what Scripture is calling us to and how to study it, to understand it. And it's not simply, well, what this passage means to me, and then that is now Scripture. It's not. He says, you have to be trained yourself for godliness. He's, He's talking, given kind of the imagery of an Olympic athlete here, who's willing to put forth effort and work to grow and to gain skill, proficiency, and efficiency. That we would put forth effort. And he says this, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And godliness here means simply this. It is the intersection of where knowledge of God and our behavior meet. Right? It's where the the things that we know and we've learned and we are being revealed to us in Scripture and then our behavior that honors that knowledge meet in every aspect of life. And so godliness is understanding what Scripture calls us to financially and where our behavior matches that. And so it rightly reflects God's character. It honors Him. That's godliness and finances. It's where it meets in parenting. It's where it meets in marriage. It's where it meets in singleness. It's where it meets in work, on mission, right? That we understand who God is, what He's called us to, and in a way of loving and obeying Him, our behavior matches it. He's pleased, and we are becoming godly, made in the image of Jesus for His name and His glory. And church, being reminded that it's because we were first saved, not that those things are what save us, but it is showing that we are empowered by the Spirit. And so he's contrasting now the false and the faithful, and then he's reminding Timothy who he is and reminding the church that Timothy is a faithful teacher, right? So he affirms him, and he reminds him. Look down at the end of chapter 4, and he's talking to to Timothy in verse 11. So I want you to command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. When it says youth, he was probably somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, kind of the first stage of a manhood in this Greco-Roman world. But set the believers an example. And he reminds them in verse four, it reminds Timothy in verse 14, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so he's saying, look, you have a gift. I'm affirming you. The elders laid their hands on and they've affirmed you. Don't let people look down on you. Take these things. Be a good waiter. Point to Jesus. You've got this, Timothy. I'm affirming you as a faithful teacher. But he's also, right, this is one of those moments where we see that this is a private and a public letter. Because as, he, as he's affirming Timothy as an individual, who's, who also is hearing this? The church. And so you almost get the sense of Paul of being like the big brother in the fight, right? And the little brother's out there like, I think I'm about to get whipped by the bully. And the big brother's just standing back, and the little brother doesn't know he's there. It's like, take your best shot, man because I'm protecting him. That Paul is writing and saying to the church, this is who Timothy is, and he has my affirmation, and he has my blessing, 
and he has been affirmed, and he has a gift from God, and he has been put in this position with authority. And I'm coming, by the way. So we'll see if you do with it what I ask you to do. And he's also reminding the elders there, you've already affirmed that you believe this is who Timothy is because you've laid hands on him. You've done this. You've affirmed him yourself. And so he is affirming Timothy privately and individually and as well as publicly, that you have the authority to lead and to root out these false teachers. So quickly, there are two kind of odd phrases that if we're not careful with in in, in chapter 4 that could bring us some concern. In the end of chapter 10, um, or sorry, the end of verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Listen, Paul is not a universalist, right? Because if he was, if he believed that God is the Savior of all people and all will believe, then we're not going to deal with false teachers, right? Well, we're not having this conversation. What he is saying is, look, that the gospel, because of Jesus, has been opened up to the world, right? That, that his desire is for mission to be going forth. And a lot of the false teaching that is coming is coming from a Jude- Judaism background, right? That is looking to eliminate and to segregate and to set some people out. And what, what Paul is saying here is the gospel is for everyone, It is available to men, to women, to rich, to poor, to slaves, to free, to Jews, to Gentiles. It's available to the world. Jesus' death is sufficient for anyone. But who will get it? The believers, right? That there will be a subset of who it's been offered to, and those are the ones we call believers, right? And then in verse 16, we have a second kind of odd phrase. He says, so keep a close watch on yourself, right, writing to Timothy, and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, Paul is not telling Timothy the way to salvation is to persist in doing what I've taught you. And if you do these things, God will love you and he'll save you. And you can also save the people in your church. What he's saying is that perseverance is a part of our faith. We don't get to make, um, uh, 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 we won't get to walk the aisle when we're seven and then do whatever we want for the rest of our lives and say, well, you know, I prayed my little prayer of voodoo and God's got to save me now. Perseverance, following after Jesus, staying with him is a mark that you have been marked by him that you belong to him. And so he's saying, I want you to stay rooted in these things, Timothy. And if you are, it is evidence that you're his and you will be saved because Jesus is faithful and he will meet all the promises he's given us, which is that I will hold you to the end. And if you do that, and if you're faithful to that, those who are hearing and listening to you teach and to exhort and to challenge will be hearing the real true gospel and will have the opportunity to persevere to the end. He's like, instead of the false teachers who are looking to lead them astray into demise where they would reject God, where they wouldn't trust Him or treasure Him or follow Him. So, in verse 11, I want you to command and teach these things. And what he then begins to do in these last verses is he tells Timothy, hey, here is how go- what godliness looks like in your life. It is in all of life. So don't let people look down on you because you're young. 
But he says, I want you to set for the believers an example in speech, in the way that you talk. He's like, in the way that you talk to older folks, the way you talk to younger folks, the way you talk to women, the way you talk to those who are wealthy, the way you talk, in all the ways that you talk, would you be an example of how the gospel intersects our speech? That you would be godly in your speech? And would you do it in conduct and in love? And in faith, he's saying, I want you in all aspects of life, in the church and out of the church, are you walking with Jesus in a way that people would look at and say, that's an example. That looks like Paul. That looks like Jesus. And he mentions specifically purity as the last one at the end of 12 for Timothy because Timothy is a young man. And there would have been an expectation of some less than appropriate, right, for a young man relationship with women. And so he's saying, so you set an example in purity as well. As a young man, that people could look at you and say, the way that he handles himself with women, with sexual propriety, those things are honoring to God. That his godliness has affected those relationships as well. That he goes, I want you to be rooted in Scripture. So listen to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And so they would stand and they would read Scripture, reminding the their, their hearers, this is who we are. This is who God is and this is who we are. This is what we affirm. It's like the hymn at the end of chapter 3. He's like, and I don't want you just to read it. I want you to exhort. This exhortation here is, is preaching. It's, it's where you're helping people take the truths that they're hearing and the, the realities of life and allowing their behavior to meet their belief, right, of what it looks like to walk in this. It's like that's your job is to take this and to exhort them to holy, godly behavior and to teaching. Where you're explaining. You're giving understanding. So he's saying... Timothy, look, these false teachers, they're, they're telling people to avoid this and to do that and to not do this, and they're involved in irreverent, silly myths. And I, what I'm telling you is you read the Word, and you preach the Word, and you teach the Word. You be rooted in it. That is what you're called to do. Not to add to it, not to detract from it, but to be rooted in it. Do not neglect the gift you have. And then he says in verse 15, so practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. He is reminding Timothy, reminding you, reminding me that the person who stands up here needs to be a lifelong learner. That if at some point you say, all right, y'all catch up, come on now, come on, that you've missed it. That this is not about blamelessness. This is not about perfection. This is not about sinlessness. This is about someone who is serving, trusting, following Jesus as a lifelong learner. is continually, continually being molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. And that we are pointing ourselves and each other back to Him. That He is good and right and faithful. That we are lifelong learners. And maturity will continue to happen year after year, decade after decade. Because he told him, I want you to toil, in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. I think sometimes we have this assumption um, that things of faith, if it's real, should be easy and it just happens. Here's the thing. You do not become financially responsible just because you got a big boy job. Right? You do not quit looking at things you should not be looking at on the internet just because you get married. You don't just wake up one day and you're like... I'm mature. 
You don't just wake up one day and find yourself holy. There's toil and striving in these things. There's, there's effort involved in them. They don't just happen. That we have to pursue the things of God in Scripture with effort and with study and with time and consistency. Listen, we understand this when it comes to working out, right? That if I do the steps of, of running or lifting weights or dieting or whatever it is, that there is a natural benefit that will come, and it doesn't happen immediately, but it happens over the long haul. And that, right, it's why we say the burn feels good, the burn doesn't feel good. What you're telling yourself is the burn tells me something is happening, and there may eventually be benefit if I keep with the burn, right? It's not that you actually like it because you don't. <laughs> right? You like what it produces. And what it produces is good. So are we willing to have spiritual burn where we will come to the Word and invest energy and time and thought? Because here's the thing, folks, it's far easier not to. It's really easier not to. To to only digest it as other people give it to us rather than to do the hard work of, of, of pouring over into meditating and studying and asking God to reveal Himself, of trusting that His Word is beneficial, of trusting the process that, that God is a supernatural God, that His Word is alive, and that it will bore into us and produce fruit. And instead, what we tend to do is we, we kind of get near the things of God and hope some of it will kind of fall off on us. But you're not going to wake up as a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old or a 90-year-old and one day go, it all clicked. Now I know Jesus and love Him a lot. It's about pursuit. It's about toil. It's about striving. And not that He would save us. Because He saved us, we will put forth the energy and the effort to know Him. Why do we read? Why do you show up on Sunday mornings? Why do you attend a gospel community? Why do we have six folks in Mexico this morning? Right? Because Jesus is worthy. And we believe that in community, we see Him. And in the Word, we see Him revealed. And in our conversations, in our transparency with one another, right, we see some of Him, and it whets our appetite, and we treasure Him, and we long for Him, and we thirst for Him. It is not to simply be religious. It's because we want more of Jesus. And so we do these things because we want Him. We want to treasure Him and we want to look more like Him, which brings Him glory. And so if your church attendance, if your religious activity, if your Bible reading is producing pride and arrogance and this evil religious spirit, you're doing it wrong. Because it's what the false teachers were doing. They were seeing a false God who applauded them, right? What Scripture does is it makes us humble and it makes us want more of Him. And it sometimes intersects our life and says, hey, you're actually not godly in this area. What are you going to do about it? Right? And it produces fruit in us. So church, here's where we're going to end with this thought. Would Timothy's charge that he receives in in, in chapter 4, would it potentially bring some repentance for us this morning? that we don't value the Word of God rightly, right? That we, we say the right things about it, but we probably don't toil and strive over the Word of God, which is where it reveals 
to us the right image and character of God. The false teachers missed it, and so they were worshiping a false god. Scripture is where we will see Jesus revealed and and, and where we see the Father revealed clearly and accurately depicted. So we know that we're worshiping the one true God. That we would avoid false teachers. We would be able to sniff it out and say, that's not, you're pointing me to something else. That we'd be able to recognize good and healthy churches and teachers. And that we would grow to enjoy and treasure Jesus for all of eternity because it has value now and forever. And that's found in the Word. And so do our lives show that we value that? Or it's something we grab on Sunday mornings as we walk out the door? Right? Like, where, where are we this morning in it? This is not for guilt or for condemnation, but a reminder that He tells him, look, you're a faithful teacher. I don't want you to neglect these things, but listen in verse 15 one more time. But practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that people will keep your, so that all may see your progress. And now verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. There is a temptation to be deceived. There's an opportunity to be deceived, to walk away from our faith, to walk away from the things that we once held dear. And the thing that will root us is the Word of God which is alive and powerful and His Spirit that resides within us. We cannot assume, right, that we can just drift into holiness. We will work and strive and toil into the image of Jesus as He transforms us by His Word, by His grace, by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that you have not left us blind. You have not left us um, without hope or without an ability to know or to see your revelation of who you are. Lord, thank you that in your word there is joy and pleasure forevermore as we see you. God, would you give us a a longing, a desire to be in it? God, would we have the humility to, to say, I don't know how to do that. And the Lord, then to walk with one another, that we would encourage and challenge and pull one another along as we trust you and your word and your faithfulness. Father, would you close our ears and our hearts and our minds to a very real enemy who is looking to deceive us? And God, would you point us and open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to the truth of who you are in Scripture. When your Spirit speak clearly and loudly that we would not be seared to, to Him. God, we want to please You. We want to honor You. And we want others to know You. God, would Your Word be powerful in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.